Thank you for joining us for Conversations with Trust Experts. My name is Brandon Santula, and I'm the Chief Fiduciary Officer of Peak Trust Company with offices in both Alaska and Nevada. As many of you know, Peak works with attorneys, advisors, and clients to provide flexible and sophisticated solutions with reliable, accessible, and dedicated expertise. Today, we are excited to be joined by Vanessa Kanega, President and CEO of Interactive Legal. Interactive Legal provides smart document assembly and drafting tools. I have personally worked with Vanessa in a variety of capacities for more than 20 years and thought she would be the perfect person to join us for this discussion today. Vanessa, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be with you today. Well, hi, Brandon. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I can't believe it's been almost 20 years, but you're right. It has been since I was back at um, Millbank Tweed in New York and working with Peak Trust. So it's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. And uh, you follow that with your, uh, your stint at Moses and Singer, I believe. Yes, I did. So just a little bit of background on me and Interactive Legal. Um, I started out practicing in New York at Millbank Tweed and then moved to Moses and Singer, which is another great firm, uh, great New York City firm. Moved back to my home state of Kansas and where I was uh, contacted by Interactive Legal co-founder Jonathan Blotmacher, with whom I worked at Millbank Tweed and with whom Brandon um, has worked at Peak Trust. Um, and asked me to join Interactive Legal, and that I did it. And basically, it's, you know, history after that. Um, so at Interactive Legal, we um, we were co-founded by Jonathan Blotmacher and Mike Graham, two greats in the estate planning world, and we provide, as Brandon mentioned, document uh, generation software and educational and other resources for estate planning and elder law attorneys. So I am thrilled to be talking about our topic today of, of uh, drafting mistakes because that's really our bread and butter and, and what I deal with on a, on a day-to-day basis. So it should be an interesting conversation. I completely agree, Vanessa. It will be an interesting conversation. I think we, um, even though we sit at the same table, sometimes we sit at the at a different side of the table. Uh, you and your folks, the attorneys and whatnot that you work with, you know, really look at things from a legal perspective. Uh, Peak does as well, but sometimes we look at at uh, documents, of course, from more of a practical perspective. And so sometimes when I refer to mistakes, they're not necessarily legal mistakes per se, but they're um, kind of flexibility mistakes. We'll talk about, from Peak's perspective, what we view to be kind of drafting uh, types of mistakes. And the, the first one that really comes to mind is, is drafting a document kind of too narrowly. Uh, for example, oftentimes we see a document that is limited to an ascertainable standard, health education, maintenance, and support. Um, and, you know, sometimes that works very, very well. But in our experience, sometimes that can, you know, hinder and, and cause some problems for a trustee and, in fact, for a family because it's just too narrow of a standard because, you know, when the trust is drafted today, and a lot of these trusts are drafted to be long-term trusts, and even if they're not truly a perpetual trust, they have the ability to last for a very long time. And the reality is, is that life changes over time. And so what we envision today, uh, those circumstances, those facts may change 20, 30, 40 years down the road. And so 
We believe that by drafting a trust too narrowly, i.e. only having an ascertainable standard, which again is perfectly legal, may cause problems at some point in the future um, because the, the trustee does not have the flexibility to make, for example, a distribution for any purpose or any reason. Um, another, another issue that we see from time to time, we don't see it as much today as we used to see, is mandating distributions at certain ages. And, and again, there's nothing legally impermissible about that. I've always scratched my head when I've seen it because I oftentimes see, as an example, that you know, the beneficiary will get 25% at age 30, uh, 50% at age 35, and the remaining pot at 40. And it strikes me as, as that those are, are kind of high-risk periods for beneficiaries. Um, they might be, for example, be going through a divorce, and it would be um, unfortunate if a beneficiary got 50% of their nest egg at age 50, only to have 50% of their 50% be taken by an ex-spouse. And in fact, I've spoken to clients about this in the planning stages from time to time, and I've asked the question, you know, how would you feel about your ex-son or daughter-in-law getting 50% of your daughter or son's 50% inheritance, and, and not one of them have said that they thought that was a good idea. So, again, we will accept a trust that has those types of provisions. We just don't think that it makes a great deal of sense, uh, not only from that kind of creditor protection standpoint, but also from the transfer tax uh, standpoint. We've, we've you know, gotten those assets outside, presumably outside of the federal transfer tax regime, and, and we're essentially putting them right back in at certain ages. So, um, you know, just think that's not a, a good idea or in the best interest of the beneficiaries. Um, one of the other common uh, things that we see is a trust not being perpetual. And, you know, it's a little early in the game to see which of these trusts will actually be perpetual trusts that will last for a thousand years or more. Um, but again, it's a matter of, you know, why create the trust today, go through the, the headache, the expense, uh, and so forth of creating a trust only to have it terminate 50 years down the road. It's, it goes back again to that flexibility matter of, of not forcing the money out of the trust. The trustee can always make distributions, but don't force it out. Yeah, I think those are all really good points, Brandon. And, and I want to back up to what you said at the beginning about your perspective and having a little bit of a different perspective um, as somebody who's often in the role of serving as trustee or, you know, a, an officer of, of a company that's serving as, as trustee. Um, obviously, you know, for attorneys that have, have worked with trust companies, we know, you know, you have your own interests that you're looking out for, as we would expect. But I think you also have an, a perspective that's very valuable to the planner because you deal on the administration side. And I think that's where a lot of these mistakes, if we want to call them mistakes, or maybe not um, ideal drafting scenarios occur is, um, or ideal planning scenarios occur is people, attorneys who don't necessarily think through all the possibilities that could arise in administration, or, you know, fortunately have not been through some of the horror stories that 
um, maybe more some of the more seasoned people have been through um, when they've gotten into administration, when you have that client who dies or the irrevocable trust is going on for several years and you, you actually have to get into the administration of it when the kids are older and they have spouses and ex-spouses and careers and all of those things that can affect the planning and creditor protection and then the tax planning, like you said. So I think your comments come from your perspective, if, if I could, not to put words in your mouth, but I think those comments come from your perspective as somebody who's involved in the administration in the down the road scenario rather than the initial planning stage or in addition to the initial planning stage, and you can provide some valuable insight into, you know, you might not want to do that, or you might want to draft that a little bit more broadly for this reason, because I've seen this specific situation come up before, and here's what happened, and you don't, your client doesn't want to be in that situation. I think that's a really, um, a really valuable perspective. Um and, you know, I, we, we were t- chatting about this before we started, started rolling here. And, and I think it kind of rolls into something else that I see a lot, which is what I would call kind of sacrificing clarity for brevity or ease of readability. Um, and for example, I mean, you mentioned the perpetual trust and, and not having the trust be perpetual. Um, and I, I take your point to be, you know, don't have the trust terminate at when the child reaches age 50 or after 50 years or, or something like that, make them last as long as possible. Um, one of the things that, that I've seen before is, for example, somebody who's in a state that has a, a long uh, rule against perpetuities period, like 360 years or something, you know, often we see this with people drafting in our program, we offer options that can be very specific like that, like a 360 year rule against perpetuity period. And a lot of times people will choose that option if they're in that state. And it's because they, they want the client to be able to read it and fully understand what's going on there. And it's a lot easier to explain, you know, the stress will last, can last for up to 360 years versus in perpetuity with all the kind of caveats that have to come with that. But, you know, we usually recommend to people a more general clause that um, says the trust can last as long as possible, subject to the governing laws regarding perpetuity. And, you know, then it goes into if you need a measuring life, here here are the people you should look at as a measuring life. That's all much more complicated and, and not necessarily as client friendly, but it allows for that flexibility because, you know, the client might not die in the same place. Um, that they're domiciled currently or the laws could change and you just never know what's going to happen. Um, And right now we have some tax proposals that could have an effect if, for example, a trust terminates and there are distributions from it. So in that case, having that flexibility to continue the assets and trust would be um, really valuable from a a capital gains tax perspective as well. So, you know, I think we we definitely see that. Um, Other examples of the kind of sacrifice and clarity for this ease of of readability or client friendliness. And I I don't know, Brandon, if you've encountered this, you may not encounter it as much on your side of things, but there is a real attorneys are in a kind of a tough spot right now because they're competing with legal zoom and, and other, um, document providers that are direct to consumer 
where the client can go and get a will or a trust that's five pages long and they can read and understand all of it. Um, and the attorneys are having to compete with that. And so I think there's this very understandable desire to make documents more client-friendly and readable. But I, I get very nervous sometimes when I see, for example, um, terms of art being substituted, like uh, substi- finding a substitute term for per serpes. You know, I get that saying to my descendants per serpes, a client's going to see, look at that and say, no, I just want it to go to my kids equally, right? <laughs> Which is, you know, what's going to happen in most situations. But as the attorney, we have to provide for all eventualities. And so you use that, those terms of art, descendants per serpes. Um, and there's a desire to make it more readable which I think is laudable and you can do it. There are ways to do it, but you have to be so careful. I mean, that, that term, just take that example, that term per serpes is doing so much work in that case. And if you don't define it correctly or adequately, you could end up with a disposition that's really not what the client intended. Um, and so, you know, the, I think all of those things go together that, you know, people are really trying to do what, exactly what the client wants and draft the document narrowly and make it readable for them. And those are all great things, but you have to be aware of what could happen in the future. And, you know, are you being as um, clear as you need to be in that document and flexible and allowing for other eventualities that might come up, you know, down the road that the client isn't necessarily anticipating right now. Well, I agree with everything that you said, Vanessa. Uh, one thing that I, I note is that we both use the term flexibility throughout our conversation, mm-hmm. um, which, which definitely resonates with me. You know, one of the other things that we see um, <clears throat> is, is with respect to trustees, and sometimes we see the beneficiaries um, uh, acting as trustee without really any restrictions. And we, again, think that's kind of a problem point. Um, again, it can be perfectly permissible. Um, but, for example, I have never seen a beneficiary who truly understood um, or respected the ascertainable standard of health education, maintenance, and support. So that could cause, obviously, some, some tax friction. Um, and another thing that we see is, is that a lot of individuals are appointed as trustee because I think that sometimes the grantors think that if they appoint their friends or business associates that it will be less expensive to administer. Uh, we did a study once um, to get some, some true information and we found that, that about 8 out of 10 trusts, there was an individual or individuals acting as trustees rather than corporate trustees. And, you know, we counter that where what we see is that uh, corporate trustees, oftentimes they may seem more expensive, but truly they're not. Um, because, you know, they have the infrastructure, they have the knowledge, they have the expertise, they have all of the things that an individual trustee would need to go out and employ. Um, mm. And sometimes that gets very expensive and, and, and a bit cumbersome. And a lot of times these individuals don't have the, the you know, time, the knowledge, the expertise, so on and so forth, to act as trustee. And I don't think that they as, they understand the the risk they're assuming by acting as a fiduciary. Yeah, well, and I'm I'm curious to know too, and I I think that's a good point. We I, I certainly see that as well, and I, I mean it's only natural you want your family members, your close friends, to act as trustee, and there are 
a few different reasons. I think that's not always wise, at least without certain restrictions. But I'm curious, Brandon, if you've had situations where um, Peak has had to come in and kind of take over a trust where things have n- not necessarily gone as planned and you had to do a little bit of cleanup work because you had an individual trustee that, you know, was dealing with their own life or it was a little bit out of their own, out of their hands, um, above their head in, in dealing with, have you had that, that where you've actually, the trust has actually ended up um, having to pay more in professional fees than they would have if they had just hired you or, or appointed peak as trustee from the beginning um, because you had to come in and then kind of do some cleanup work afterwards. Um, absolutely. We, we become successor trustee on a, on trust that had initially uh, individual trustees uh, quite often, actually, for all of the reasons you, you mentioned. It's oftentimes, again, less expensive to pay a corporate trustee. Uh, as you're familiar with, PEAK has very low mm-hmm. um, administrative-type trustee fees. Um, but uh, oftentimes, you, you know, again, it goes back to what I mentioned before, the infrastructure, the knowledge, the expertise. Folks don't always have the infrastructure, meaning the, the trust accounting system, for example. Sometimes we've become trustee of trust. You know, uh, we've got one trust that has in excess of $100 million in it, and the former trustee was was literally, you know, kind of uh, kept everything uh in one pot and was doing back of the napkin type adjustments to, you know, how big Sally's pot was and how big John's pot was, uh, you know, doing back the back of the napkin accounting uh, for, for loans and so forth. Um, there was a lot of, a tremendous amount of cleanup that had to be done because of that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think that's important. And I, and I completely understand how it happens. Like I said, it's natural. You want the people involved in your life, your family members to be the, the trustee. They're the most trusted people. And I think people are somewhat uncomfortable with the idea of a corporate trustee, not just because of the, the fees. And, and I, yes, I agree. I've, I've peak to the extent that um, I've worked with you, you've always had very, what I consider very reasonable rates, but um but not just because of the fees, but I think it just makes people uncomfortable to have an institu- you know, that term institutional trustee involved. It's, it's institutional, it's clinical, but it really does um, help. I've seen situations where it, it kept a lot of problems at bay. And I think you raised something about the administrative fees. There are ways, it made me think of this, there are ways you can deal with this by drafting in the document, right? You can deal with, you can keep the people who are close to the family involved, the people who, you know, are the, the really trusted confidants involved, but also still have the corporate or institutional trustee involved as well. And one way is, is when you say administrative, there, I take it there are situations where you're just acting as what's called the admin trustee, right? So somebody else may have powers over distribution or even investments, but you are, is acting in just that administrative role. Is that right? That is absolutely correct. Yeah, and I and I think that that's, you know, you have to set that out, and this is one point that I know you had mentioned too, you have to set that out in the document and be very clear about who's doing what in that case. You know, what does the administrative trustee do? What does the distribution trustee do? You want to make that absolutely clear, um, but that's one way you can deal with it in drafting. Another thing that we do in the interactive legal documents and that I know a lot of, uh, I've seen a lot of of documents do in in different ways is to 
allow, for example, a beneficiary to act as trustee, but they're limited um, to that health education maintenance and support standard. And then there is a broader standard in the trust going back to that flexibility, but you have an independent trustee, whether it's institutional or somebody who's you know, just independent, not a beneficiary or potential beneficiary, not related or subordinate in most cases, um, that's acting as trustee and they can make distributions pursuant to that that broader standard. And that, um, of course, is there for tax purposes to prevent the beneficiary acting as trustee from having a general power of appointment for estate and gift tax purposes. It also can help provide creditor protection. And just as a practical matter, in a lot of cases, you know, do you really want that beneficiary having full control over the trust from which, of which they're a beneficiary, but they're probably not the only beneficiary, right? You've got other people involved, other beneficiaries involved. I mean, just as a practical matter, that's not, it kind of flies in the face of the reasons um, people are creating trusts in the first place. So, I, I think that's that's a really important thing to make sure you have that clear delineation, you know, have an independent trustee when possible, and then have a clear delineation between who's doing what, whether it's the independent trustee, whether the interested trustee can act, and then if you have an independent trustee just for administrative functions, investment functions, you know, be very clear about what that means and who who is doing what, who has the responsibility to do what. That, that is right, Ginsness, and that's a fact pattern that we, we see oftentimes, and I know that the ILS documents uh, contemplate that, where there are these, you know, different trustee roles. And one of the ways uh, that we didn't really touch on is, is allowing the beneficiaries to act as a so-called investment trustee, so they could really be responsible for, you know, how the investments are are handled at the trust level and and provides, you know, the the family involvement and so forth. One of the last things I would like to talk about, it's not so much a drafting mistake, but I think it ties into drafting mistakes, is <clears throat> not having kind of the what I call the family discussion on wealth transfer. Uh, oftentimes, I'm asked by clients, the grantors of a of a newly created trust, you know, Brandon, how much money should we leave to our children? And it's an it's an interesting uh, question. And my general response is, is well, sir, you know, how much have you prepared them to receive? You know, sometimes beneficiaries are expecting great sums of money, only to find out that it's it's not a great sum of money; it's far less. Um, and, of course, they are always disappointed. Uh, sometimes they're expecting a, a more modest sum, and only to find out that they are extremely wealthy. And sometimes beneficiaries have difficulty in, in managing uh, or helping to manage those assets, or maybe they have decided now that uh, they are infinitely wealthy and that there are no restrictions. They can spend as much as they want, however they want, whenever they want. So I just think it's very important that that clients have the wealth transfer conversation with their children to kind of outline for them what their plan is, what they anticipate doing, how much they anticipate uh, contributing to the trust and maybe broad terms of the trust so that the, the beneficiaries aren't surprised when mom and dad have passed away and now they're sitting, you know, across from me at the conference room table and they're shocked to find out that they're not, you know, uh, infinitely wealthy as they had expected to be. 
Yeah, I think, um, you know, that kind of gets into this this concept of what I've heard called legacy planning, um, right, where it's not just about the wealth transfer planning, it's it's what is the family's legacy, what, you know, what, is, what are the family's goals, and getting everybody on the same page so that they, you know, the first step is maybe knowing what the size of the pot is so that they can decide what their goals are. You know, the goals might be very different if you're dealing with $100 million versus, you know, $100,000, right? Um, so I, I think that's a really good point. And, you know, it's a way to, for the client even, to learn things about their family members and what's important to them that they may not otherwise know, right? So the kids could say, well, what's really important to me is that my children have the best education possible. And then, you know, that's something that, as the attorney, you can take that into account in drafting the trust. Um, you know, you can, you can add, again, I'd make it precatory just for flexibility, but you can add provisions about that specifying that this is a goal of the family. And, and I think those are really, those can be very helpful conversations in really narrowly tailoring the plan to meet the client's, um, the client's goals. The other thing that it can do is sort of draw out issues that the client may not think to tell the attorney about, like um, beneficiary, potential beneficiaries who maybe have um, special needs or, you know, considerations that they may in the future now or in the future need to qualify for government benefits. Right. I mean, one of the one of the really important things and one of the really unfortunate things that you can see is um, somebody, you know, drafting this beautiful trust that provides for, you know, mandatory distributions. But then you've got a beneficiary who needs to qualify for Medicaid or other benefits. And those mandatory distributions are going to get in the way of that, whereas that could have been avoided with a supplemental needs trust. So I think it can help draw out those issues. Um, also issues of if there is a blended family, you know, children from a prior marriage, um, you want to make sure that's adequately accounted for so that you know, you know, who, who are your, when you reference descendants or children in the document, who are you referring to? Um, and so I think those conversations among the family can help kind of tease out issues that the attorney needs to know that the client might not seem to inform them of. And so it just provides for a better, more solid plan all around. Well, Vanessa, you're absolutely right on everything. Um, appreciate it so much. Um, Vanessa, I just want to thank you so much for your time, sharing your knowledge and expertise. I know the audience will appreciate your thought leadership and commentary as much as I did. Hope everybody has a great day, and thanks again for listening. Thanks, Brandon. Thanks, everyone. Have a great day.